Um, today's uh, topic, I think, is one that's a very uh, crucial, fundamental, essential one. Because uh, obviously, if we talk about what's really important in Judaism, um, you know, on the uh, on the short list is going to be Torah and Torah study. And as we've learned in our history classes, there's been a like almost a national obsession with Torah study um, for millennia already, throughout the generations. It's been so paramount uh, to what defines us as a nation. Uh, and it's been our pastime, uh, you know, th- throughout different centuries, different parts of the world, different cultures. That's the one constant. You know, the Torah has been described as the portable homeland of the Jewish people because uh, the one thing that kept us united or kept us as a nation, despite the fact that we lost our national homeland and we were dispersed and we were, you know, different countries and different languages and different cultures, but what kept us united as Jews was the Torah. That's what it has always been. So it's something that we do so much. It's 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 a mitzvah that's focused on very heavily, uh, and you know even today uh, in 2015, uh, I, I I made the argument once, and I still think I, I haven't crunched the numbers, but I still think that it's most likely true that there are more people in the Western world studying Torah than any other form of scholarship or wisdom. Um, now, when I say that, I mean that when we study Torah. When, or the kind of Torah that I'm talking about is not where there's a finite curriculum. They say, okay, I want to do this, so then I'll get some sort of degree. I mean, study for the sake of study. We talk about Torah study, as we'll see later on. We're not necessarily talking about things that are very practical on a day-to-day basis. You're not, you're not, pra- you're not learning law to be a lawyer or learning medicine to be a doctor or engineering or whatever form of... You're learning Torah for Torah's sake, that's number one. Number two, there are people doing this full-time throughout the world, and there's more people doing that than I, th- I, I would surmise uh, than studying any other form of scholarship for the sake of learning scholarship. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a remarkable amount of, 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 of human and Jewish brain power dedicated to Torah study. Uh, and you, you know more than the people studying the Quran. You know, you got oh, so I said, West, so I said Western world, because I don't know what's yeah. wrong with the Quran. Yeah, yeah. There's a million and a half, billion and a half yeah, yeah, Muslims in the world. And yeah, just by percentage. So yeah, yeah. So, so that's why I said I said Western Wall to prevent that. Because uh, I yeah, because I think you could are who knows what's going on in the Near East and yeah. whatever the but, Buddhists would, and the Hindus or whatever. Would you say that there's a key difference in how people study Torah versus the Quran? Because we're understanding the Quran is it's like rote memorization versus Torah. yeah. I'm saying and also at the scope of the uh, of 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 the subject matter is just. There's nothing like it. There's no wisdom in the world that's as broad and as exhaustive and, and, and as intense and as deep as Torah. There's not, nothing like that. And, and the reason why is because we have it from the Almighty. It's the Almighty's Torah. It's not some, some, you know, some uh, illiterate merchant's writing, which is what they, claim, they themselves claim that Muhammad is. I'm not found me. That's one of the miracles, by the way, of Islam. One of the, mirror, the defining miracles of Islam is that how could Muhammad have written the Quran when he was illiterate? Well, he was inspired. He had yeah. seizures. He did have seizures. But what, what's clear? I, I, what I might, the best guess is that he outsourced it to uh, to to some clever, cynical Jew to do it. Because a lot of the a lot of the a lot of the Islam's teachings are like Judaism, but with a little twist. You know. I thought he mixed the he mixed the 
like for yeah of course of course he was influenced he or whoever wrote it was influenced yeah. um, but there's like an interesting little cute little tidbit the halacha is a Torah that says that if someone divorces that's a verse in the Torah if someone divorces their wife they can remarry them they were to change their mind five years later however if if they married someone else in the interim then that's it that's it that's that's the Jewish law not not very practical most people when they're divorced they're done with it right huh uh, well, okay. Um, so, but married a woman, divorced her, remarried her, and then divorced her. But but was, was anyone married in the interim? Couldn't get uh, an opposite feeling of divorcing her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and in in in, uh, in Islam, it's the exact opposite. If you divorce a woman, then you cannot remarry her unless she marries someone in the interim. So that's that's my theory. That some some quirky, cynical Jew just said, uh, you know what? Let's throw this part of the law. You know, it's like a wink, wink to anyone that knows where it's from. I saw a divorce in Turkey right in front of the mosque. The guy walks around three times. I divorce thee. I divorce thee. I divorce thee, and she's on her own. Now she never had a family. That's how savage you are. They never had a family there or relatives to take her in or something like that. She was open prey. No, if you divorce, you need to return the, what's called? Dowry. I don't know what Either way, either way. So the Torah has been something that's uh, fundamental to, to Jewish life for a very long time. And Torah study has been the most important path of the Jewish people. In fact, the Rambam, as we all know, Maimonides is the rationalist, right? Reasonable. He's the, you know, he's a Jewish philosopher that, you know, it's one of us. He was a he was, you know, was a physician, he was a philosopher, exposed to all the wisdoms in the world. And he tells us in the laws of Torah study, uh, which is the third topic that he tackled, a third or fourth topic that he tackles in, in, his, uh, in his magnum opus, the Mishnah Torah. He says, listen, it's very, very important for everyone to work. If you don't work, we don't believe in, in, in Torah. Maimonides writes this. This is a point of contention. We don't believe in Torah study and no, no, one, no one should subsidize your Torah study. You have to work for yourself. So, so what's normal? He says, well, you should, you should work three hours a day. And study the other nine. That's what he says. A, a regular guy. We're not talking about the, the advanced scholars or the rabbis. This, he's talking for everyone. A work, regular working, working person. You work for sure three hours a day. And then you study for nine. <laughs> no, it's... So, um, I, you know, I, and I, and that's, that's illustrative of kind of the dedication that, that the Jewish people have had throughout the ages to Torah study. Um, Rabbi Elsewhere also writes that the most important quality that you have to seek out before moving to a certain place is that there is a sufficient uh, a Jewish education infrastructure. Um, it's just like if you, you, you're, one is not allowed to move to a location where there's no Jewish synagogue, no, no schools, etc. Uh, and we're told in Scripture, Vedisim and Malayali study Torah day and night. Uh, clearly, um, um, you know, when we start off our conversation about Torah study, we could say that the Jewish people have been doing it and we have been proposing, uh, encouraging people to study as much as possible day and night. And the question that we want to ask is why? What's the benefit? Why are we studying Torah? And I promise to give you 10 reasons, uh, but when I was doing the research, I found many more. In fact, I have 15 here. Oh, I, I, have, say I, 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 I have 15, and well, actually, on the way here, 
on this deposit slip, I wrote another one because I was thinking I had thought I had a new, new idea. Let's see if I remember to uh, insert this into our conversation. So, so what are the reasons why we why we study Torah? So, anyone wants to just throw out maybe the easiest reason? What's the easiest reason? Understanding God. Oh, that's the easiest reason. Oh, maybe I, I don't know. It's a okay, 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 okay. That's that's good. Any other ideas? Oh, ooh, to uh, oh, to like reinforce Jewish faith, um, and uh, in contrast with other faith, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Debt. Yeah. What do you mean? To previous generations. To repay a debt. Not necessarily repay, but to carry a torch. Carry a torch. To, keep to uphold, uphold, uphold the uh, the tradition. I should have asked you guys beforehand. <laughs> so, so let's start with what I think is the most simple one, and that is it's a mitzvah. Yeah, it's a mitzvah. Study Torah. In fact, the Talmud tells us that the mitzvah of Torah study is greater equal than to all of them. So it's obviously not just a regular, it's not a regular mitzvah. It's one of those really special mitzvahs. Now, it's also very interesting. Um, is that the Talmud says, Talmud points out that there's no explicit Torah mitzvah to study Torah. There's none in the 613? It's, 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 in it's, it's in there, but it's not explicit. In fact, the, the verse that I quoted to you, I said it's in Scripture, very you should study Torah day and night. That's actually, the eight, I think it's the eighth verse of the book of Joshua. So what's, what's interesting is that right at the beginning of the books of the Scriptures, it says to study Torah explicitly. Uh, but the Torah itself does not uh, does not does not uh, uh, add or does not explicitly write study Torah. And Talmud says very very interesting. Listen to this guy; this will blow your mind, or maybe it won't. Uh, and the Talmud says the reason why the Torah does not explicitly say to study Torah is that it's uh, it's no no it's it's that uh, it's somewhat crass and crude. For um, someone, let's say a, a, a spouse, to demand intercourse, so too it's crude of the Torah to demand that we study it. That's what it says, and that kind of I think opens up a window of, of an insight that what's the comparison that the Torah that, that the Talmud here is making is that the relationship that Jews have with Torah. Is akin to intimacy between a husband and wife, which is remarkable. It's a remarkable idea. But the wife can demand intercourse from the husband. Well, they, she can. Like we mentioned that last time. But yeah. it's but but it's encouraged for her to demand it not in a crude manner, but in a tacit manner. You know, in a covert manner. You know, uh, that, that's what it says. And in fact, uh, my grandfather once wrote in one of his books that. The description that we have of of the first spouse of the first wife, no, 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 <laughs> don't even try. We have too much on the schedule today. <laughs> so um, the first description we have of Eve, or of the imperative for creation of Eve, lo tov adam levado. It's not good for a man to be alone. I will make for him, I shall make for him a, a helpmate. A help a 
right? and assistance, help. Man can't do it alone. So just like so we compare Torah. That's been true for all of these generations. Yes, that's right. But we compare Torah to a wife that that someone would consort with. Thus, my grandfather once wrote that the Torah is going to be a helpmate. It's going to be an assistance for us to achieve what we need to achieve. So uh, man, thus, is, is dropped into the world, parachuted in with responsibilities and with tasks. And things are demanded of them. The Torah... Right, just like the wife is the wife, the wife created a unit that they work together to achieve those goals. Man cannot do it alone. Man cannot do it alone without without Torah. Uh, but what's what's that's an interesting thing. And there are other examples, by the way, of this uh, of this comparison of Torah to a to a wife. And both of the ones that I can think of, we're not going to discuss right now. So let's move to the next one. So that's number one. Number one, it's a mitzvah, and uh, and. Um, Number two. What's, what's number two? So I found number two here. Um, I think it was also very simple. It's no halach. Someone mentioned this. We talk, we talk about the Torah. The word Torah means instructions, and we look at the Torah as being instruction manual for life. You know, when you buy a new toaster, it says read the instructions before using, because otherwise death or loss of limb could result. <laughs> you know, and the more sophisticated the machinery, like you bought a new car, it comes with a very thick manual. You buy a new Bluetooth speaker, it comes with a very thin manual. If you buy a 747 jumbo jet, it comes with an enormous manual. Right? The more complicated and sophisticated the machinery that you're going to be buying and you're going to start using, the more you need to know about how to operate it, how to maximize it, how to not mess it up. You know, it was a great um, Larry Ellison is uh, one of the wealthiest people in the world, nice Jewish guy. He's the wealthiest Jew out there, um, the CEO of Oracle. So he wants. He once put in his plane diesel fuel. Oh no, no, I'm sorry. I think he put regular fuel in his plane in his uh, Gulfstream uh, G45, which is a 50 million dollar plane, which is nothing for him. But um, and he near like he had he flown his plane, he would have, you know, he would have. Yeah, I don't know if he blown right, up, but he, he destroyed the re- destroyed the engine. Yeah. You know, they had to just chuck out. Uh, uh, chuck out. I was remember hundred thousand dollars worth of fuels just. That's an example. If you don't read the instruction manual, you're going to mess up. You know, <laughs> clearly with planes and clearly with a lot of things. You know, if you don't know how to use things, you don't know how to maximize things. You won't. You won't know all the features. So life itself, the Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and everything, such sophistication, right? Such a uh, 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 minutia, and thus we look at the Torah as being. The instruction manual that comes with the world. You know, if you want to operate your toaster, your 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 jet, your car, your washing machine, whatever, you should read the instructions. If you want to maximize life, you have instructions. We, that's what we consider the mitzvahs are instructions for living. And how do you know what to do? How do you know how to fulfill the mitzvahs? How do you even know what the mitzvahs are? The six hundred thirteen out them. How how many of them can we name right here, right now? How many? Of, if we were to, def- I'm not essentially do that, but all all what eleven of us, whatever it is. If we were to just go naming one of, do you think we could get past two hundred? I doubt it. Because there's a lot of mitzvahs, and we have to read the Torah. And we don't remember all them. Yeah, maybe. I, yeah. But a few hundred are all. Okay, let's start with number one. Don't break the bones of a, of, a, of 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 the carbon pesach. Okay, number one. Okay, number two. Oh, thank you. That's number one. <laughs> yes, um, a lot of them are. That's a good point. A lot of them are uh, are, uh, are are ones that are not relevant to us. 
Um, and we'll, we'll get to this in a second. The next one, we'll, we'll address that, that idea of, of studying mitzvahs that are not relevant to us. Uh, but we do have many mitzvahs that are relevant to us. We, we, we saw the tefillin video last week, and this, you know, people said that we're in tefillin, and they don't know, you know, I didn't know this particular aspect of the mitzvah, or this halacha, or this, you know, even I, I watched it. I never learned the laws of tefillin intently. I watched it. I learned stuff as well, how they make the tefillin. Very cool. Yeah, I didn't know you didn't know that. You know, all the details about what, you know, what they use, what they don't use, and like that was very informative, and that is helps us know how to live life. The instructions for living. The, the, uh, are they numbered? The six hundred thirteen commandments. Are they numbered? Like fill in his number X. Or Let us hold off to the number four. So we have three and four. I'm saying we have three and four here oh, with. Okay. Uh, um, so, uh, but I want to point out when my in my years in yeshivas, I spent uh, I don't know uh, nine years in yeshiva, so post high school uh, yeshiva Torah study. I would, I would guess that probably less than five percent of the subject material that I was studying was relevant to me in a day to day day to day life. You know, the vast majority of times you're dealing with, you know, uh, you're dealing with loss of partners, uh, laws of documents, the laws of uh, jurisprudence, the laws of finding a lost object, uh, you know, the laws of, of custo- the four custodians. Uh, my cow killed my my bull wars uh, Bernie's bull and in my house and his house and right these details you're like Whoa, wait a minute if if Torah study was all about knowing how to live your life today 2015 how to maximize uh, life in a practical way for us uh, we wouldn't be spending as much time studying everything else so why do we study everything else you know? so in fact the Talmud helps us a lot by telling us. Uh, that there are three mitzvahs that are not relevant or practical ever. I mean, so the three scenarios where uh, the Torah tells us what to do, what the law is in, a certain, in, these three, in these three scenarios, and in fact they never happened, never will happen. What are these three mitzvahs? Wayward and rebellious son of, of Deuteronomy. Yeah, the, the, the son who eats a certain amount of meat and drinks a certain amount of wine and steals and lies and this and that. And they, they first they leave him lashes and then, you know, and he's between 13 and 13 and three months. And his parents decide to do it. They're both the same height and same weight and same size and same voice and all the details, the, lots of details in the eighth chapter of Sanhedrin, Ben Sorumore. And the Talmud declares in that same chapter Ben Sorumore, wayward and rebellious son, lo haya, never was, velo yihiya. And, oh, I'm sorry, below us in leaders will never in the future be. So why was it written? Why would you write? Why would you totally? It's instructions for living. It's, you know, it's, it, it's not a situation that we will ever encounter. That's one example. Other example is when someone has leprosy in their house, so splotches appear in your wall, you got to dismantle the house. And the third one is a city that in, in its entire, a Jewish city in its entirety, has adopted idolatry and the entire city is burned. Uh, but that is also uh, will never happen. The Talmud points out because if there's even one mezuzah or one tefillin or one religious article of any sort, one Jewish book, it will not uh, fall under the category. So it's not; it never happened. So what about? Wait, let's go back to the first one. Wayward rebellious son. Yeah. yeah. What do you mean we never have a wayward? Not, It'll never happen. It will never happen because there are so many details that have to be the punishment. Would never Yes, means oh, the punishment. Oh, okay. yeah, it means the, the detail. This Torah-specific case of 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 a, of a wayward rebellious son, uh, where the child steals money from his parents uh, between the age of thirteen and thirteen and a quarter, and a quarter, and a quarter 
I'm sorry, 13.3, yeah, 13.4, 13.3 months. He buys meat, eats undercurtain meat uh, and wine, an enormous amount in Walden Gulp uh, in, in, in bad society. And both of his parents happen to be the same height, happen to look the same, happen to have the same voice, happen to none of them have any sort of uh, melody of any sort. Uh, and they, uh, on their on their own accord, decide to bring him into court. No one else can bring him to court. They have to testify, etc. And then they have to get lashes. Charles do it again, all within three months. And then the parents have to decide voluntarily to execute their own kid. That will never happen. Nice. So, so many details. So, someone said, this will never happen. So, why is it written? Lama nichta, why is it written? Droge for Kabbalah Schar. Study and gain reward. So, item number three is study and gain reward. Now, what kind of reward are we talking about? doesn't say. Um, it could be that it's um, reward in, in the next world, some sort of spiritual reward. Or it could be, I think I might have mentioned this to this group before, in fact I remember that I did, it could be reward in this world. It means that there's lessons that are, uh, that are inherent in these, in these episodes uh, where we could learn something. It's, it's not just about the particular uh, example and, you know, and flesh out, flesh out that example uh, uh, to its conclusion. Rather it is uh, teaching us an idea. So like the idea of, of parenting, etc. So that would be number one. Number three, to receive reward. And in fact, the Talmud tells us that if someone studies the laws of an Ola, they receive reward as if they fulfilled an Ola. What's an Ola? An Ola is a, a sacrifice. So you ask the question, we study laws of sacrifice, or laws of all these laws that are never, that are never uh, pertinent to us, practically. But we study them, we get the reward. And if someone studies the laws of an Ola offering, then they receive as the reward as if they brought an Ola offering. So what this reward is, like we said, we, that, 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 that part, I think, you know, there's, uh, there's, you know, there's, there's uh, room for uh, ambiguity. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's spiritual reward. Like any mitzvah you do, you gain a certain spiritual achievement. Uh, or, or is it... understanding of what, why they did what they did when they did it. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe that. But but it's it's a mitzvah, and mitzvahs uh, grant you reward even if it's not practical to you. So we already have three. Let's go to number four. There's what gets interesting. So you asked the question: Is there any book that discusses the uh, six hundred thirteen mitzvahs in order? So there's a book of apocryphal authorship uh, from the thirteenth century. The book called Sefer Hachinuch. The word chinuch. And what does the word chinuch means? Education. The book of education, and it's a book that uh, delineates. Mitzvah number one in Genesis, before we'll multiply, and council mitzvahs in order from the first mitzvah in Genesis to the last mitzvah in Deuteronomy. First mitzvah being before we'll multiply, last mitzvah being write a Sefer Torah. Write a Torah scroll. It's a mitzvah never went to write a Torah scroll. Um, mitzvah number two, have a bris milah. Mitzvah number three, don't eat the sciatica, etc., etc. It goes from one, and it gives like a brief outline of the mitzvah, you know what it is, who it applies to, when does it apply, and a little bit of the reasonings behind it. Ta'ameha mitzvah. So that's to answer your question. But in his introduction to this amazing uh, world-class book of scholarship, he asked the same question that we're asking. Why would the Almighty give us such an intense, such a deep, such a spiritual, such a robust Torah to us lowly humans? Why does the Almighty give us Torah? Why are we studying Torah so much? And he says an insight that's a, just a, a fundamental idea in, in all of Jewish life and philosophy. He's like this. He says, the Almighty created three kinds of creatures. We know that uh, uh, science has uh, various estimations as to how many different species there are in the world. The smallest number that I've seen is 1.25. 
million. The largest number that I've seen is 8.7 million. These are clearly estimations because no one has any idea. And uh, our toilet science where uh, 25, 25 different uh, species are going extinct every single solitary day. And, and just to throw another wrench here, and according to science, according to the experts in extinction, 99.9% or something like that of all species that have ever existed are already extinct. So if you were to flesh that out, we're talking about uh, over the history of the universe, we're talking about hundreds of millions of different independently existing species. And if you just want to take it to the next conclusion and you say, wait a minute, is it possible mathematically for us to have so many different species on such a short amount, relatively short amount of time, talking about you know, 3 billion years, which is nothing to create hundreds and hundreds of millions of different species Coexisting, in fact, and they're all they're disappearing at twenty five a day, and when they're not appearing at twenty five a day, they're not evolving at twenty five a day. So you do the math, you have a real big problem. As if you don't want to, if you if you want to take the road of of not believing in God and believing in all being random, mathematically it's impossible. It's, it's impossible uh, because the engine that drives it all, evolution, is clearly not working uh, to the degree that would be needed to create hundreds of millions of different species when we haven't seen in all of human history even one new species uh, uh, um, being created or being evolved, and we see the rate of depletion being much faster than the rate of production of species. Anyhow, as an aside. Either way, so there's millions of species, and they all share one commonality, and that is that they're instinctual. They are pre-programmed to respond to situations. As an example, you'll you'll never be able to convince any animal in the world to go on a hunger, on a hunger strike. It's not possible. It's not possible for someone for for an animal to take an ideological stand and say, "I'm not eating." We have Nathan Sharansky, the great uh, refusenik hero, who I read his book. Um, what's the book called? I forgot what his book is called. Um, about his time, his time period in Soviet Russia, and he went on a hunger strike of. And who wants to guess it? Hundred and I think the hundred and ten, one hundred and twenty days, insane, insane dedication to an idea. They used to feed. They used to put a. Uh, um, they used to put a pipe down his throat, and just shovel in like this mixture of whatever. But that that is something that's uniquely human. We'll see how why an animal cannot possibly do that. It's not possible. All millions of animals. That's cre- 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 uh, or creation. Uh, creature number one. Creature number two. 100% instinct. Reason number two is the angels. Angels are 100% intelligence. An angel, it's not possible for them to be dominated by anything other than pure intelligence. They cannot be swayed by instinct. You know, if it's not rational, if it doesn't make sense, if it's not what they're instructed to do intelligently, then, or spiritually, however you want to say the same thing, then they're not going to uh, act. And then you have one other class of creatures, and that's humans, where we're half angel, half animal. We have our instinct. If I snap at your face, you blink, right? Even though you knew it was not, intellectually, you know, I'm not going to poke at your eyes, right? If I said, hey, listen, Dan, I'm going to do a move with my head, and I'm not going to poke your eyes, you'll still blink. Why? You're not blinking intellectually. You're blinking because you have pre-programmed DNA that responds to instincts. You're instinctual. Yet, you have the ability to override that with your intelligence, for good or for bad. But you have an ability. As a human, you're granted the unique capacity to have this, uh, this struggle, this conflict of mind and body, of what we call soul 
and 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 uh, uh, and animalistic instinct. And in 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 the big picture, we talk about man's responsibilities in life is uh, is to you know negotiate or navigate this divide. Uh, this conflict and make sure that the soul or the intelligence overrides the, the body and the instinct and not, not vice versa. That's what the Chinuch writes in his introduction. And he says, how are we going to do that? As we, I've said this a thousand times, I'll say it again. If man does nothing, if man does not take action, invariably one of those two sides will win. And that's the instinct. Because instinct is a little bit more powerful than intelligence, or a little bit more entrenched than, than intelligence. So if you don't do anything about this, you don't empower your intelligence, you don't sharpen your mind, you don't hone, you don't awaken your soul, what's going to happen? Who's going to dominate in this struggle? Your body, no question. Says the Chinuch, the reason why we have a Torah is because a Torah sharpens the mind. The Torah appeals to the intelligence. When someone studies Torah, what do they do? They're engaging their mind with pure intelligence, 100% unadulterated intelligence. Why? Because you're, you're digging into God's brain. That's what you're doing, essentially. It, God's will, you know, it's, it's from the Almighty. That's pure intelligence, pure spirituality. Thus, if you want to possibly be successful in your life's mission, if you want to possibly have a situation where your intelligence is going to override your instinct, you have to make sure that your intelligence is sharp, is honed, is ready for battle. How do you do that? You do that by studying Torah, the greatest brain pencil sharpener out there. I look at the Torah, I see like, you study Torah, just imagine like a, a lumbering guy just spinning like this, and his brain is in this pencil sharpener, sharper and sharper and sharper. Now, once, uh, once advocated, you know, the yeshiva, yeshiva schedule follows a, a universal uh, schedule, I guess, and that is um, they have off three times a year, one month for the month of Nisan for Passover, three weeks uh, for the summer, and three weeks for uh, from after Yom Kippur throughout through Sukkot. So we're talking about four weeks plus three weeks plus three weeks, so ten weeks out of the year that vacation schedule. Now it's not pure, and 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 you don't peak your intelligence if you study other. I, yes, I, w- I would agree that it, that that you, you play chess or you study sciences, you do brain twisters. Yes, but nothing compares to that at Torah. Um, so, but I would this is my idea. This is my idea to literally save humanity. I want to take during these ten weeks. I'll take some of the yeshiva guys. I, I studied yeshiva. Like I encountered these. Literally, like I I, I want to describe it as like you know, like you see like the late night infomercials, blenders. The blender infomercials, <laughs> just chopping into like you know, in a, you know, just turbo powered blenders that just incinerate, not incinerate, or just totally obliterate whatever you put in there. That's what it's like. These yeshiva students, the, you know, the ones that are obviously this, you know, people that varies intelligence and degrees of uh, dedication. But I, I knew people that like you present any idea, you know, the idea. And before you know it, these razor-sharp intelligent, intelligent analysis just, you know, organizes it into different sections and boom, like it's, you know, just like that, just like that, like, like that high-powered blender. These are some of the most talented intellectual titans on the planet, I, I would argue, you know. 
The Torah creates these intellectual soups. So my idea is like this. I want to take, during these 10 weeks, I want to take all the major problems of physics, of engineering, of sciences, of biology, everything, you know, and just present it uh, over three weeks, like a three-week course to these guys. And just have, like, just uh, presenters. Like, they are our biggest problem. You know? It's like, and this, this is humanity's sharpest intelligences. This is it. They're in yeshivas. And I think as a way for them, so my idea, we, we, we would cover the funding, we'd get grants for it. Uh, that's my idea. Like, because that's what it does. Torah sharpens your mind. Yes, go ahead. And I mean that literally well, because five, nine years as yes, but you you find people that are very intelligent. They 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 have zero street smarts. Do you understand what I'm saying? I think what you're saying is that you can be extremely intelligent, but if you don't take in the human emotion and the human actions with that. Yeah, so that's why, as we all know, the um, yeshiva schedules are comprised not just of. Of, of like Talmudic Torah study, but also of Musar. So what the what the what the yeshiva goal is to create not only uh, these uh, mental giants, but also these people of, of incredible character. And yes, is you saying do they know like uh, are they worldly? Some yes, yeah. some no. Very varying. Put a code on already. I'm sorry. Come in out of the rain. So you have these these isolated episodes of like you know of of strain yeah, strength yeah we have we have a lot of those in yeshivas uh, well some of them you know uh, I knew one guy who was like a bona fide genius uh, but like a bona fide like a genius is genius there's always, there's always like five or ten of them walking around you know uh, and you know so yes you have some of those. Uh, and thank God they're not spending their time playing uh, uh, video games like the rest of the other potential geniuses that uh, that that the, that our world is graced with. I would say that that what you're saying, like you look at some geniuses in like fields of physics, you know, like like Sheldon on That's the TV exactly show. That's exactly who I was thinking. You about. know, but it's different because here they're doing Massar, they're doing self reflection, looking at their character traits. Mm-hmm. You know, guy. Like, they're not doing that in the other fields. Yeah. So. Um, no, one can make. No, I, I agree. I agree. I agree that there, there, there are, of course, like in any in any field where there's going to be, yes, um, uh, the, that's going to happen. But it can't. Everybody can't be all well-rounded, no matter what field you're in. No, but he's talking about taking these geniuses and putting. A I'm, I'm, not, I'm not only saying taking geniuses. I'm taking. Taking brains and right. and, and squeezing out, out any that environment and putting them in a real world uh, problem solving. Problem solving. But remember, problem solving. That that's the thing. What, their intelligence is so sharp that as long as they understand what the subject matter is, I believe this is my theory. I said this is my way to say world. This in ten weeks, if you put somebody into. No matter how smart they are, you put them into a new subject they have nothing, they know nothing about. You know what happens in Talmud? You know what happens in Talmud? You know what happens in Talmud study? The Talmud is all is all one subject. Every day they do that. They take on a new subject. Yes, but and and subjects as as broad and as exhaustive as whatever else that they need to encounter. This is what they do. That's new every day. They encounter new subject matter. 
and they learn about new ideas, and they have to uh, they have to get a a footing in in the intricacies of very very broad ideas. I think your ideas are cool ideas. Thank you. That's what I wanted to hear. Let's move on. So. <laughs> Then I'm going to get more, but I, I, I say you can be very sharp and really in, in one area, being the study of Torah. But that's the thing. Not so good. But remember, Bernie, put you in another environment and you, it's a totally different uh, type of study. Uh, if you put it into practice, if you put things that you're learning into practice, practice. Yeah. But but what I said was is that exactly the opposite. It's not just about becoming intelligent in Torah. It's about Torah. Forming who someone is, yeah, yeah. and 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 the, the Chinuch writes uh, that the way someone is going to prevail is only if their in- intelligence overrides their instinct. How do you make sure that your intelligence is healthy? You know, is active, is robust. Feed it, right? Hone it, right? Sharpen it. I have a friend here. I have a friend. A little bit of hubris, right? Yeah, but I have a friend. I have a friend here in town um, who I always argue, always debate. He's a big, um, whatever. He's a Jew. He's a very sweet soul, but and very also very intelligent. Um, But he's. He's not so into the... He doesn't believe that Torah is necessarily divine. Not that he's any exposure to it, but which is probably why he doesn't believe it. But either way, he wants to argue the reason why Jews are so gifted is because throughout the generations, the greatest uh, minds, the greatest intelligence were the rabbis. And the rabbis always propagated uh, very uh, profusely. Thank you. Um, while the greatest minds of the Christian world were the priests, and they didn't have any kids. So it's like a, it's like a self-selecting, you know, like a natural selection with a uh, clever idea. Well, if you take the, the Holocaust and you look at the people uh, at the end of the Holo- at the end of the war, with those who were standing with little sticks, their legs were sticks and all, they were the fittest. Well, they were the fittest, or they were the ones who just weren't uh, sent down the other line. No, Many of the, the workers, remember, the better one that could work. Yeah, but remember that they're, they're, they're fit in what way? They're not fit necessarily in, in modern day. Know, maybe they were shrewd or somehow. Maybe. Oh, you know, maybe the Almighty said these are the ones that are going to rebuild the Jewish yeah. people. And we don't even know why. Uh, like, I know I've, I have some of my own ancestry. Um, my great grandfather, for example, was a genius of in, incredible, world class mm-hmm. genius. World class. Yeah, he's from Slobotka. Um, I, like, I have, a, I have his book, which thankfully was smuggled out. We have some sort of... Uh, he was one of the heads of the major institutions. A, a genius of, of, of little world-class genius. And he, you know, he was, he was unfortunately, he was uh, burned alive in a hospital in 1944. Uh, but that doesn't mean... It means yeah, but the Jewish people, we all, you know, we have, we've had geniuses dime a dozen. Um, that's one argument as to why that is. But... Uh, um, Either way, that, that's the idea. The idea being that the Torah is going to empower our soul or intellect, however you want to call it the same. So I want to take this a little deeper deeper level. It's a very cool insight based on something that we've discussed before here. 
So we know that the child in utero studies the whole Torah. We mentioned this many times. When the child's born, they forget the whole Torah. Right? Or it says an angel comes and touches on a lip, and he forgets the whole Torah. As it says in Scripture, sin crouches at the entrance. So I always have this mental image of some angel slapping the kid in the face, and the child forgets it. And obviously the question we have, wait a minute, what's the point of teaching the child Torah if the child's going to forget it anyhow? Question. It's a, the first question you have to ask when you examine this Talmudical text in Nida 30b. But what I discovered was that there is a, a different Talmudic text that also talks about what happens to the child at the moment of birth. And it says the child at moment of birth gets something called the Yetzirah, the, called the evil inclination, evil, evil inclination, at the moment of birth. And it proves this with a source in Scripture, and the very same source that is used to tell us that the child gets the whole Torah tells us the child gets the Yetzirah, gets the evil inclination. And we know one of the rules... One of the rules of 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 of, of Torah exegesis, which is a fancy way of deriving laws from sources, is that you only use one source for one law or one insight, or one idea. How is it possible that Talmud in Sanhedrin ninety one B and the Talmud in Nida thirty B take the same verse? Lefeta uh, chatas rovets sin crouches at the entrance. It's the verse in the beginning of Genesis to say both. The child forgets the whole Torah, and that the child gets the uh, Yetzirah, the evil inclination, um, at at birth. How's it possible? Two separate things. I don't understand why they use the word sin. That's a good question. Let's let's hold off on that question. Oh, sin because the child doesn't have Torah, so more likely a sin. The child has the evil inclination, which, by definition, by design, is designed to try to compel him to sin. That's the easy answer to your question. Sin just sounds like a no, not original sin. What about the Adam? I said I'm surprised they used the word sin. Why is that? Because, because you associate the word sin with the Christians? Yes. We predated them, remember? Predated, but <laughs> what's another word? Are Le, you saying that the literal word... Well, the word the word literally, if you want to get on an etymological level, do, the word chatas, uh, or the word hate which means sin, also means when someone shoots an hour and misses the mark. Right. They really right. want to miss the So, whatever whatever strikes your fancy. No, it's not about striking fancy. It's about being a more literal... Well, we look... Well, literally, it could mean sin, or it could mean... Uh, um, uh, it could mean missing the mark. Or, missing the mark is not the same. That's right, but literally, it could mean both. Just like the word... You know, many words in the English language have multiple meanings. But in in, in 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 biblical Hebrew, when two words have when or when one word has multiple meanings, it's because those meanings are linked, not just that it's randomly that the word, I don't know, peer and peer, uh, and peer and peer. Pair of eyes looking out from the pier uh, with their peer um, and eating your peer. Right? Right, so so yes. Well, when the when the roots of the words and and the multiple meanings are linked, and the idea being because when we talk about a sin, it's also missing the mark. It's it's misdirected energy. Okay, so uh, so so that's the question. How do we use uh, one verse for multiple derivations? The answer is because it's really one thing that happens. A child in utero is an unhindered soul, and what's a soul? 
A soul is an element of pure spirituality. That's what it is. Thus, a soul has imprinted, embedded, ensconced upon it Torah. Thus, a child neuter knows the whole Torah because a child neuter is a soul that doesn't have the influence of the body. We talk about man being body and soul. Man being half animal, half angel. Right? What's the angel like? That's the soul. And what's that? that that's Torah. That's Torah. That's spiritual. And then you have the influence of the body. What's that? That's the Yetzirah. So what happens? A child in utero knows the whole Torah because it's just a soul. As the child is being born, they get the influence of the body in the form of the Yetzirah. And thus, by, as a direct result, forgets the whole Torah. Not, not because the Torah is disappeared, rather the Torah is now, the Torah is now buried under the mountain, under the influence of the Yetzirah. Thus, really only one thing happens when the child uh, emerges to the world. Therefore, all you need is one verse. Brilliant. Genius. Right? Right. So it's only one thing. One thing happens, but that has multiple uh, results, multiple consequences. The child gets the influence of the, of the, now they're a human. They weren't just, now before them they were a soul. Soul knows all Torah. Now they're a human because they have the influence of the body and the soul. The body on top of the soul. And therefore, that it leaves the consciousness because we know as a human you have the influence of the instinct, the influence of the, of the intelligence, the body and the soul. And what's more powerful? What's what's more? I'll get to in a second. What's more at the forefront of someone's mind? Their body. Thus, what happened? Where's the soul? The soul's still there. The Torah's still there. We still have a soul deep, deep, deep within ourselves. But it's 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 hard for us to relate to it because our first reaction is our instinctual and animalistic reaction. Yes, what you're saying. Yeah, the, of course, it's by design. Absolutely. Yeah, well, the Talmud does give us a reason why the child doesn't have that influence beforehand. We'll, we'll hold off on that. Okay. Um, now, uh, just to add some flavor to this idea, Abraham, we talked about this once, I, th- I think we did. Maybe we talked about it elsewhere. Abraham knew the whole Torah, Talmud says. And the Midrash asks, Mehechan Lamar Avram Avinu Torah. Where did Abraham really study Torah? The Torah wasn't given until much later. Moses was his great, great, great grandchild. Where did Abraham know Torah from? So, if two two midrashes in different parts of of of, of the midrashic literature, one says Me'atzmalamet from himself, and one said that his two kidneys became like two springs. Either way, it's from within himself. Within himself, what he just examined his uh, intestines and he found Torah. No, there's something within each and every human. That has Torah, that's the soul. And even before the Torah was delivered from the spiritual realms to the physical realms, right, or to within, you know, before Moses gave us the Torah, the Torah was still part of every soul. Abraham had a soul. A soul is purely spiritual. A soul, the DNA, the software that's printed upon the soul is Torah. So Abraham was able to engage his soul to such a degree that he was able to derive Torah from it even before Torah was even given. What about these priests that were supposed to be in the area there when Abraham and all those great prophets were? Did they get any education from those priests who were supposed to sanction their position? Which priests? What priests? That's what I'm saying. Malchizedek and all them people. Oh, 
so Malki, yeah, so those those were people that still had somewhat of a tradition. So uh, Adam had a, Adam perpetuated a tradition. So we talked about this once, the difference between Abraham and what, what his innovation was. Abraham was working on his own. So Malki Tzedek and even Noah, they were they had they were vestiges of of Adam's uh, tradition and teachings of God. Abraham was unique, bro. He was working all alone by himself uh, in a sea of paganism, and he arrived to these conclusions on his own. But he studied Torah within himself because he was able to tap into the power of soul. So now, let's bring this full circle here. When someone studies Torah, they are talking the native tongue of their soul. So you study Torah from without, right? As our bodies, like we talk Torah without, and deep, deep, deep within ourselves, buried under this mountain of the Yetzirah, our soul hears this faint, you know, it's like, it's like someone calling out to you in your native tongue, you know? You know, whoa, it's like soul gets awakened, so to speak, because that's what the soul is. The, the soul is Torah. The soul, well, the soul is not Torah, but the, 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 the Torah is the language of the soul. So thus we talk about Torah reinforcing, strengthening, uh, awakening our soul, it has a much deeper level because that is what the Torah is all about. That's the fabric of 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 of, of the soul. You know, I, I look at it as you know maybe a way of a, of an illustration. If we look, you know, just on a bigger picture, like the relation to the body and the soul. So you have the imagine like the soul is a um, held captive in a prison with ten foot, you know, steel reinforced. Steel reinforced uh, walls separating the body from the soul, or the active consciousness from the soul. That, that's what it's like. Your job is to create a bond between the body and the soul, to reunite them, to align them. That's what it is. Like we said you you have the body and the soul, and mm-hmm. you want to you want to have the influence of the soul impact the body. We look at Torah as as and all mitzvahs really as creating small little puncture holes within this massive, massive division, this massive barrier that's separating uh, the soul and the body. And Torah, more than any, anything else, creates a very, very strong link between our consciousness and our soul. So that, that, that's kind of how I was look, look at, 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 at number four. So we're talking about why we study Torah. And we said we have 15 reasons, and then we're done through one, one through four. Number one, because it's a mitzvah. Number two, because we have its instructions for life. Number three, to receive reward. Number four, to sharpen and hone our mind and empower our soul. Let's move on to number five, shall we? We shall. So, to fend off, this is a little bit of a, of a continuation of, well, slightly overlap, mm-hmm. but you'll see it's, it's a different idea. Uh, to fend off our Yetzirah, to, to fend off our evil inclination. As we mentioned, the evil inclination is, an, is, a, is, a, is a power. It's not its own power, it's not independent power. We don't believe in that. But it's, it's, it's by design, because the Almighty wants us to have this struggle, the Almighty created counter forces to what we ought to do, to make it worthwhile. Otherwise, it's no, it's, it's no resistance. There's no resistance, no pain, no gain. So, um, how do we um, engage the Yetzirah, the evil inclination? What do we do? So there's a few different methods that, that we could do. Number one, we try to avoid it. You know, uh, if you guys remember, we talked about this once at, at great length. We said that uh, uh, Abraham, uh, Jacob told Reuven, you sh- you're not a king and you're not a priest. 
Why? Because your uh, your your um, uh, your uh, uh, compunctious compunctious compunctious. Which word am I trying to say? Compunctious. Impetuous. Compunction. No, compunctious is a word. Don't look at me like that, guys. Compunctious. It's got to be a word. If it's not, I coined. It. I I hereby coined it today. Um, <laughs> so that's uh, so that so that's uh, that that's the idea. When someone lives their life in a way where they avoid encounters with their evil inclination, is is it's one, it's one degree or one uh, kind of method of 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 engagement. We have another method of trying to uh, align the interests. It so, is a word. Compunctious is a word. Thank you. Causing <laughs> or feeling compunction. So, you also said stalling was another technique. I write that down here. Stalling. Thank you. Thank you for remembering that. Is that like procrastination? Yeah, wait five minutes, you know? So, um,. <laughs> Uh, we have another one. Um, the Mishnah says, the Mishnah says in uh, in Perkei Avot, chapters of the Fathers, Yafet Torah im avon. It's good. It's really beautiful. It's nice to have Torah together with hard work, because toiling in both of them will make you forget sin. This is the idea of forgetting. You know, where you, it's not it's not in your mind. You're too busy with other things. Uh, but I found two. Areas where Torah enables someone to have very high levels of engagement with their evil inclination. Uh, and as, <clears throat> as an important note here, we, we, we call the evil inclination evil when the, the, the Midrash calls it very good. Because while it is evil, it's trying to compel us to sin, but it is the only way for us to achieve anything in life. There's no way for us to become any greater people uh, the the you know, the whole great experiment of humanity is where there is optionality. You know, there's 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 opportunity for greatness and there's opportunity for wickedness. That is that that wonderful experiment is only made possible by this force we call the evil inclination. So it's a very good thing because if we're to become better people, we'll need uh, the uh, efforts of the evil inclination. So I found the Talmud. I mentioned it uh, when we talked about the evil inclination at great at great length. The Talmud says like this. Father gave a uh, uh, father gave a uh, 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 his kid a big blow, and then he gave him a bandage on top of the blow. And he said, "Every time you have you wear the bandage on top of your blow, you don't have, on top of your wound, you don't have to worry. Eat what you want, drink what you want, take showers when you want, take cold baths when you want, no problem. But you take it off, it's gonna it's gonna consume you." That's the example. It's the illustration, and that's a parable for the idea of God told the Jewish people, "I gave you a wound, evil inclination." But I gave you an antidote. I gave you the Torah. The Torah is the antidote. Torah Tavlin. Barasi Barasi Torah Tavlin. If you tell any yeshiva student, it says, you say, finish the sentence. Barasi Yetzir Hara. They ought to say Barasi Torah. If they don't say it, then you quite called the question there, yeshiva tenure. <laughs> uh, but if I, I created uh, a Yetzir, right? I created the Torah as a Tavlin. The word Tavlin, back to the point that we talked about Janet, uh, is Hebrew for antidote, but it's also Hebrew for spice. And this is two levels of how the Torah uh, provides us either an antidote or a spice 
for the Yetzirah. Antidote because when someone is fully engaged in Torah study, then it eliminates the power of... They're able to overcome and override their uh, their evil inclination. That's number one. Number two is the spice because, uh, because it is a way to channel energy that could be used for sin and channel that towards uh, towards Torah. Um, how so? So the Zohar, there's the only Zohar that I know because my grandfather quoted it, the Zohar says that um, if not for um, the Yetzer Hara, Yitzer De'arai, if not for the uh, evil inclination that tries to compel us to uh, sexual promiscuity, there would be no uh, uh, delight in Torah learning. Now you look at sexual promiscuity on one hand and Torah learning and the very divergent things that's what you would think about. But there's a certain energy that a man has, a man more often than women, uh, as we all know. I don't want to get into that argument, guys. Uh, 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 but <laughs> there's a certain uh, energy that that men, unfortunately or fortunately, have that compels them to be uh, to to seek out uh, uh, illicit immorality. Uh, that's a reality. That the Zohar tells us that this same energy, if it on the kosher side. If it's channeled correctly, that gives the delight in Torah study. That gives the power, the energy, uh, into uh, the the passion of, of of Torah study. And that's why the rabbis had all this. No, <laughs> that was not what I was getting at. They channeled it the proper way. <laughs> Continues by the way in that place in Kedushin 30, also 30b. Uh, it says like this: Translates: If this is talking about the Yetzirah, if this loathsome one attacks you, drag him to the house of study. So, like, if you have like the uh, the the you know someone comes to mug you, terrible evil. What do you do? What do you do? Well, what do you do? What do you guys think? What do you do? If someone comes... If you got a gun in your face, you give him the money. You give him the money. But he, he, you have a menace. The menace, this uh, reprehensible... Oh, what do you do? No, you run away. That's what you do if you yeah. can. The Talmud says, if, if this menace that we call the evil inclination attacks you, drag him to the house of study. Drag him to the house of study. What should you do? Talmud is essentially saying... The way to avoid or the way to overcome this menace is by studying Torah. So it's essentially you're saying that whenever you have a fear, you are better served. No, no, well, no, that's, not what, that, that's not what I said. All I said was that if, that the Talmud says, that if this loathsome menace, the Yetzirah, attacks you, drag him to the house of study. And the problem, I think, is that what it should have said is if this loathsome menace attacks you, Flee from it, run away from it, and run to the safety of the house of study. That's not what it says. It says, drag him, mashche, we used to drag him, kick him in the stream into the house of study. What do you mean? You should abandon him. Well, or if it's, you know, if it's attached itself to you and you know you think about it, I guess that's work, you know, this desire to do something. Yeah. Well, you just carry it with you, it doesn't matter. If you can't get rid of it, carry it with you all the way. But why drag it? Little words, drag it. No, drag him. 
it's the inclination, right? It's Whereas with it. Well, it's a, it's a, it's it's, 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 it's you to study Torah so you cannot think of it anymore. Uh, that's not what it says. I would love to agree with you. <laughs> so my insight is like this. My insight is like this. This is what I wrote over here on the way here. Exactly. That that uh, on the deposit slip. It says like this. It says, drag him, drag this influence. I think perhaps what it's telling you like this. It's saying that don't try, once this power is upon you, don't try to shake it off. Rather, channel it. You want this power. This is a power, this is a potent power that's going to help you if you channel it in the proper way. Like we said, the same passion that can be used for, for seeking out immorality, if it's channeled correctly, it brings the light in Torah study. So, I, but I think it's two levels. This is why I want to add a five, five, and five A and five B. There's one where it's an antidote. Two where it's a spice. A spice helpens. Right? A spice improves. You know, the to- it's it's it, right. The, the, the Torah is like a spice for the, for the evil inclination because you're taking the same thing, but you're giving it a little different flavor. It's the same energy, same passion, but it's used for something good. It's spice, it's spice for for the positive. Um, we have a few uh, other points about this, um, with regards to um, how um, how it could be an antidote. Totally above it. Uh, we find the Rambam at the end of the laws of Isure Bia, which means forbidden sexual encounters. Uh, the very, very, all the way at the end, he says, There is no thought of immorality, only in a heart devoid of wisdom. What he's saying is this is the same idea that Talmud says that if a, if a heart is totally consumed with wisdom, no thought of, of, the, of the Yetzirah is going to penetrate. That's number one. Number two, um, we have the three cardinal sins, which is murder, idolatry, and adultery. They are exact opposites of the three things that the Mishnah tells us in the chapters of the Fathers that uphold the world. Torah, Avoda, service of God, and Gemilus Chasadim, and, 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 and loving kindness. Why? Kindness means to give. A murderer takes everything. Right. Obviously, worshiping God is the exact opposite of worshiping an idol, and Torah is the opposite of of, of illicit sexual activity. How so? Because we, the the, uh, the locale of the root of sexual immorality is in the same element where the Torah is uh, uh, is going to be filled. So, if the heart is full of one, it can't be full of the other. You know, they're opposites. Um, now. Let's skip that and skip that. that. The heart has a feminine side to it. How so? Well, sexual immorality, uh, obviously being female in order. I don't know. In your, the way you're languaging it would be that the heart is for the feminine part of us to design. Lave, well, lave, uh, interestingly, lave, the, word, the Hebrew word for heart is masculine. Yeah. But the, the, but the, the, the soul is feminine. But it's, it's clear that the <laughs> raw is definitely uh, feminine. He's the expert at this. <laughs> yes, but the other the inclinations yeah, that he's talking about and all those other things, dragging him, it's always male. I'm just listening to what you say. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, 
Yeah. Um, uh, the uh, yeah. Okay. I thank you. I, me too. Um, to recap, I think that the Torah is going to help us in uh, combating our heart and our, our evil inclination in three different three different models, three different modalities. Uh, number one, uh, or the, the it's going to help us forget it. If you're busy with Torah, with other things, you'll be busy. But someone who's busy, you know, the uh, the uh, uh, boredom is always a segue to sin. My mother used to say that the idle hands are the devil's handiwork. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I agree, but other but to what you're saying, that is to be staying occupied and to be right. So you occupy with Torah, occupy with other things as well. So that's one thing. Number two, on a higher level, is you channel it. You know, you you don't. You don't forget it. You have it there. You drag it to the house of study, and the highest level will be where it's totally eliminated. It's not a factor because your Torah, your your, your heart is totally consumed uh, with Torah. Uh, numbers that would be number, I guess, five, six, and seven, or five A and B, five A, B, and C. Uh, number six. We'll go through this. Try to go through this quickly. Oh my gosh, they're eleven, nineteen. Uh, oh, you know what? Let's tip to number nine. This is more fun, I think. Uh, yeah, if we have more time at the end. Uh, to save the world. We study Torah to save the world. If there were not people studying Torah, the world will self-combust. Talmud is very clear in several places that, number one, it says that God created the world conditionally. It's conditional upon the Jews studying Torah. If the Jews were not studying Torah, if the Jews abandoned Torah, the entire world would just revert back. It would just be before the Big Bang. No matter, no nothing, no, no time, no space, no, no energy. All that would just, would just evaporate. Uh, number one. Uh, number two, it says, that's the, in one place, that's in Shabbos. In the book of Nadarim, it says that um, if not for the Torah, the God wouldn't create the world. Well, it says it in a, diff- in, a, in a different kind of language. Idea being, if there was a second where there was no Torah study anywhere in the world, the entire world would just incinerate itself um, in, a, in a moment's notice. Now you'll say... Uh, uh, you know, and, and the Talmud elsewhere says also very interesting that people who claim or who who derisively exclaim that what do the rabbis do for us? What do the Torah scholars do for us? How do they benefit society? Uh, the Torah says that the Talmud there in Sanhedrin says that they have no portion of the world to come. Why? Because the people that are saying that don't realize that they're only existing because of the Torah, the, the, of, 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 the Torah of the Torah study. You know? And the great Valajan Yeshiva, the mother of all yeshivas, of all modern yeshivas, uh, they had a policy that 24-7 there was always someone, they had they split the days up. 24-7 there was always someone in, in, in the base uh studying. Always. Like the near to me. Near to me, exactly. Uh, because and this is the idea, the idea being that the entire world is only granted, this on a deeper level, the entire world is only granted the, um, just lays on a deeper level here. Um, <clears throat> on a deeper level, we say that when we describe God, we talk about God as being the creator whenever it happened, you know, thousands of years ago, millions of years ago, billions of years ago, whatever. At the point of origin of the world, God created the world, number one. Yeah, the world, everything within it. Number two, God is a sustainer. 
So according to Jewish theology, if God uh, were to cease continually giving the world energy and life and uh, uh, just spiritual sustenance, thank you, nourishment, the world would cease to exist. It's not like you're created and then it goes on its own. There's no autopilot. The merit of the Torah study guarantees that uh, that uh, that this uh, plug is not pulled from the world. So we here today, saying today, studying Torah, in a small way, we are contributing to the world continually existing. You know that um, the um, there was this uh, there was this great uh, rabbi who once who who used to have a policy because there was one time during the year where almost no one was studying, and that made it, it made the put the world in a precarious situation. And what's that? Like the two hours after Yom Kippur. What happens after Yom Kippur? Everyone's famished. Everyone like goes and like you know engorges themselves with food. That's what happens, right? So, you know, even everyone, everyone is fasting. All those Torah styles are all fasting. So therefore, there's this time period where, you know, there's uh, somewhat of a, of a weaker uh, or, or a less dedicated uh, Torah-studying population. So that's why he made an effort. Every year, he wouldn't, he wouldn't break his fast. He wouldn't go to the breakfast meal until he, was stu- he studied for two hours. Two more hours he would add to his fast. Because uh, he would just study Torah, because he knows that that's the time where the world is like, you know, it's very volatile. Here's a, a question. Is yes. When we're dealing with studying Torah, do we, as a number of people study, do we include the Gentiles who are studying the Bible, the first five books as well, and studying Torah? Yes, so the Talmud says um, in. Uh, the book of Avodazara 3a, the book of, I think it's Horius 10, also a, and the book of Sanhedrin 59a as well, following statement. Quote, Torah, um, uh, Aphilu, even a Gentile who is studying Torah, behold, he is like a high priest. You know that the apex of spirituality or the holiness is the is the high priest, high priest on Yom Kippur. Uh, that that's that's the apex. And even a Gentile, someone who's not supposed to be studying Torah, it's it's, it's, it's the Jews. It's the, you know, we Torah is called the Jewish birthright in, in the Torah itself. So it's meant for Jews, it's not meant for non-Jews. Even a Gentile who studies Torah, it uplifts him uh, spiritually uh, to be on par. With the high priest, you know, uh, so that, that's remarkable. Um, now that being said, uh, Thomas says, "Wait a minute, but the Gentiles not supposed to be studying Torah. This means he's studying Torah in whatever mitzvahs are pertinent to him." So the Gentile has the seven, the seven uh, Noahide laws, and uh, and those are laws that are uh, uh, are mm-hmm. fundamental. To how they should live life, and how all of you men should live their lives, and in those areas, when they study Torah, it's it's, it's Torah study. It's not just uh, it, it Torah study with all the uh, with all the qualities and all the uh, greatness uh, attributed uh, to that. <clears throat> so, I want to tell you guys a, a personal story. Uh, in the year two thousand six, uh, there was the Lebanon War, Second Lebanon War, it's called in Israel. 
that's when they were sending the, the uh, uh, Hezbollah was sending Katyusha rockets to the whole northern Israel. Thousands and thousands and thousands of rockets. And uh, it was in the summer of 2006. So we know that I just told you guys the, uh, the schedule for a yeshiva student or yeshiva schedules is that they, um, they, they're off in the summer for three weeks, but the war was going on. So the yeshiva says, we're not closing our doors. And the Rosh Hashiva, since past, I mean, since Fifinkel, he, he got up and gave a speech to listen. You know, we're at the vanguard here of, uh, of saving the world. You know, we're the ones who are ensuring peace in the world. The Torah scholars increase peace in the world. How can we, you know, when the brave soldiers and our military is at war now, how can we abandon our posts? So he said, we're not taking off. And they didn't take off, you know. So for, you know, there were thousands upon thousands of students in the yeshiva, biggest yeshiva in the world, Mir Yeshiva, where I was studying, uh, and he said, "We're we're not we're not taking off. We're we're continuing going. You know, it's many you have summer plans. You go into your camp, or you planning on going to the north or the south, or you want to go sites. It doesn't matter. We're not taking off because that's our mission." He, he viewed this as not just being something we do for a finite amount of time. We're contributing towards saving the world and ensuring peace. <clears throat> and not only that, he said, "I want everyone to make an effort to write." Torah insights. The highest level of Torah scholarship is not just Torah study, but getting to the issue, an issue so deep that you come up with a novel idea, a Torah, brand new idea that was never said till then. Torah is so malleable. It, it's, it's God's wisdom. It's infinite. There's, room, there, there's so much room for, for growth and scholarship and wisdom and insights that the Chidushi Torah, which is called Torah novel, novelae, uh, novel ideas in Torah uh, are, are, are ubiquitous. Or there's room for it, whatever. So he says, I want to have, I want everyone in the yeshiva to, to, to write up a Torah essay on some new novel Torah idea. So a lot, hundreds and hundreds of people. I remember I, when I was delivering mine, he had stacks like this in his office uh, of the, 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 the contributions of all the Torah, like stacks and stacks and stacks in his, of, 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 what the, of what the yeshiva students contributed uh, towards what we call towards the war effort, which, by the way, as an aside, when we were talking about last time, a few times ago, about why or what's the rationale, what's the arguments to and for uh, taking the yeshiva students out of the yeshiva, making them go to the army, one of the arguments is this, that according to the Torah, and this, you know, this is um, not just an idea that was invented recently, this is the Talmud, it's established already uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years in the Jewish philosophy, that Torah study does more than anything else to contribute towards uh, the safety of our people, uh, um, in uh, in a degree no less than than the soldiers doing the physical battle. That's the idea. Uh, obviously, it's a controversial idea, but uh, but this this is where it comes from. So that would be number nine. Let's, I want to quickly run through six, seven, eight. I don't want to miss any. I'll try. I'll do them faster. Can we go till twelve? We don't have to go to twelve yeah. here. Let's go to twelve. So we'll go to twelve. And um, okay, so at number six is a little bit different than number five, A, B, or C, uh, to achieve unbiased uh, intellect. Um, so we talked about honing the mind, making it sharp. But there's also a problem that our mind is uh, biased. And that is, you know, if you want a certain end to be, to be true, you know, like you've ever been in an argument. Maybe this only happened to me. But if sometimes you're in an argument with someone uh, or a debate or disagreement, and then halfway through the argument, you realize that the other person is actually right. And you're wrong. You still feel an urge to continue arguing. Justify. 
Why is that? That's because your brain tells you this is what you want. So I'll continue to concoct arguments. It's like what a lawyer does when you know your client's guilty. Uh, but or because you convince yourself that this is right, you know, so that's 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 what I was thinking. Sounds like a husband and wife. <laughs> now, um, if our intelligence is our most potent, most vital, most crucial tool in life, we want to make sure that it's not biased, it's not convinced. I mean, we're going to make very important decisions about our lives, about our beliefs, about our families. It's a very important decisions. How do we know that we're not going to screw up? You know, like just as an example, you mentioned marriage, right? So marriage uh, is a decision. It's a very important decision, right? Unfortunately, most people in the world, or at least in America, that make those decisions make terrible mistakes. And the consequences of a bad decision as to who you're going to marry are devastating. Financially, emotionally, for the kids, it's devastating. Yet we see the vast majority of people that make this decision make a bad decision. Why? It's something which is the, probably the most important decision you'll make in your life is who you'll marry, right? Arguably, right? You could agree about that. Yet, so many people don't make the correct decision. Well, why not? Why would someone not take the most time they possibly can to make this decision? The most important decision you'll ever make in your life, well, you might want to take more time. How is it possible that the most important decision in, most pe- in everyone's life or most people's life is going to be one that you're going to screw up royally on? Why? Huh? They make it with emotion, or maybe they make it with intelligence, but it's 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 perverted intelligence. It's 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 biased. It's not clear. It's not clear, rational, reasonable intelligence because may, maybe they don't have that access to it. The Torah, uh, that's one example, but there's lots of examples. I, I think you know maybe uh, either the second or I think this is probably the first most important decision someone has to make is whether or not God exists, really or not. Not, not like, yeah, I believe, whatever. Not think about it too much. Most people don't actually think about this issue too much. But the consequences of whether or not does God exist or God not exist? Is it true or is it not? Is it a bunch of baloney? Is it a bunch of folklore? Is it a bunch of nonsense? Or is it is it a reality? Most of us try to take this in between. Yeah, of course we believe in God. We go to synagogue. But, you know, we don't take it that seriously. Uh, that it impacts our lives and our decisions. And it's it's always looming above us. Most people don't do that. Why don't most people do that? I don't know why most people don't do that. Um, probably because the you know that's very painful to actually make these kind of important decisions. Either way, uh, but if someone were to go about doing that, they have entrenched interests that are going to uh, uh, that are going to uh, influence their decision. You want to make that important decision. You have to make sure you have, you have clear, unbiased intelligence. How do you gain clear and biased intelligence? The Torah is a fantastic way because it's just it's it's a straight intelligence, and it you know and look like we said you know it, it, in the in in the in the Torah arena, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you are, it doesn't matter if you're a bastard like the Talmud says. Talmud says a bastard who's a Talmud chacham, someone who's someone who's a, you know a bastard is is a pariah uh, in in the Jewish world. But he's a Torah scholar. He supersedes the uh, the high priest who is not a Torah scholar. In the Torah world, what matters is, is what's right, what's reasonable, what's, art, what, what's intellectual. If, 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 a, if a young child makes an argument that's true, the, the great rabbi has to lay down his, uh, his argument as well. So, um, you know, we call this in, 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 Jewish, in Jewish literature, in Jewish philosophy, it's called Das Torah. 
where das means knowledge or intelligence of Torah, where the studying Torah, the more someone studies Torah, the closer they're going to align the way they think, the way their mind thinks, the way the Torah thinks, i.e., to make your brain as close to God's brain as possible, as close to unadulterated intelligence, not biased and not being swayed uh, by any one of your whims. Number seven, to achieve love of God. When you look at the Torah, the in, 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 you know in the in the in the broader sense, what you ought to see is a book of instructions. Primarily a book of restrictions. You talk about kids, kids say, ah, not interested, so many restrictions, who wants to and, and you know, and it's legitimate. You know, the Torah is very restrictive on what kind of pleasures we can and cannot have in the world, what we could eat, who we could sleep with, where we could live, what we could uh, many, many, many restrictions. And uh, you know, I think, you know, just if you were to just glance at the Torah, you say, wait, who needs all these restrictions? Who wants them? How does it benefit my life? But in truth, all the pleasures that are banned to us by Torah law are what we call simplistic pleasures. We talked about the different levels of pleasures, higher levels, lower levels. Um, they're all simplistic pleasures. What the Torah does open up for us is the most advanced and most sophisticated and deepest forms of pleasures are open to us. True, true. Well, however, this is, I think, a, a semantic. These are prohibitions. Yeah. Restrictions or guidelines. How do we live? Well, no. Prohibition is not a guideline. Prohibition is I shouldn't do it. Oh, okay. I, I said, I said prohibitions. Hundred percent. Then you're going to feel resistance to the restriction. If you look at it as a guideline, then the resistance inside of us is less. No, but it's, it depends on how it's stated. Whether it's it, 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 whether it recommends that you do a certain thing or whether it demands. Right. That's your own interpretation, Jordan. It's a recommend. It's a guideline. If it's recommended, it's take, a guideline. Take, take the best thing that's good for you. The ten you suggestions. Want a restriction. You're a sitter. Okay, that's. <laughs> so we find a mitzvah uh, and that is uh, the mitzvah of loving God which is a crucial mitzvah we know it's part of the Shema the first verse after the Shema you should love the almighty God with all your hearts with all your soul and with all your resources we're commanded to love God and we know this is a problem because having an emotional reaction or reality towards God even an intellectual uh, relationship is difficult how are we going to have an emotional relationship that's a major problem. Now, with this mitzvah of loving God, just as a cute little, cute, important tidbit, there are six mitzvahs that are called the six constant mitzvahs, mitzvahs that are not related to time. They're always there upon us. Number one, to believe in God. Number two, to believe in the power to believe in one God, love God, fear God, and not be, not follow any of our other, uh, uh, not follow the desires of our hearts and our eyes. These are six end mitzvahs. These are goal mitzvahs. These are what mitzvahs are supposed to um, bring us to the end. So this could be an entire series, by the way, on these six mitzvahs, six-part series. But either way, one of them is to love God. How do you go about loving God? Ask my money. What do you do? Yachshav Yisbon. You think and you dwell upon either Mamra of mitzvahs of of God's mitzvahs, God's Torah, or God's creations. Until you have an achievement, until you have an insight, until you have, you hit pay dirt, and you have pleasure in that pay dirt, um, um, which is the highest level of pleasure. 
The Ram tells us that the mitzvah of loving God is appreciating or uh, uh, appreciating the enormity of God. That's what it means. To such a degree, to such an intellectual degree, where it affects your emotions. That's what he says. How do you do that? Four-step process. Number one, you think. Number two, you dwell upon. Yes, bona. There isn't really a good word for in English. It means to think deeply, to dwell upon the issue intellectually for a long and, uh, and protracted amount of time, but also on a, on a heightened, on a heightened state. That, that's where the what the word means. It's just kind of hard to synthesize that into one word. Yit bonen. So two things: think and and have this uh, this this deep form of thought until you have an insight in one of three things: either in a Torah or in a mitzvah. Or in God's handiwork, which we would call maybe science. Until you have an insight, click something clicks. You've been working on it for six months, and you finally have an idea, and that will 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 uh, will will trigger a pleasure that's the greatest pleasure around. That's the midst of love of God. It's a discovery. Yes, 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 yes. But a discovery that's born out of a process, not just like a discovery that's that's that's. Uh, just uh, beamed to to your virtual reality goggles. Right, right, right. Yes. Now, um, this uh, experience says the Rambam, and it is. Um, it seems like there are people from the people that have experienced it. Uh, they sign off on it. Um, is is the greatest pleasure possible? So while. The Torah does tell us to withhold from certain pleasures, whether it's a prohibition or restriction or a guideline, whatever you want to say, it's to withhold from certain pleasures. The Torah is opening up the door for us to have these other pleasures. Now, how, how does this work? Because the Torah, we said, is, is the mind of God, God's brain, so to speak. And God's brain is quite vast. In fact, it's so vast, it's, it's infinite. Because God, you know, like God, it's, it's, it's an infinite idea. The deeper you go, the deeper you realize. You know, the more study you have, the more you realize how little you know. Most, you know, a kid is who, the kid who, who, who spends, you know, six months preparing to read their bar mitzvah, to them, that's it, I've done it all, you know? And then the advanced style like Rabbi Akiva says, what do you mean? Compared to what Torah really is, I'm nothing but a shepherd of small, small animals. Rabbi Akiva considers himself a shepherd. The person who knew the most, who Moses says that Rabbi Akiva is, a, is someone who should be delivering the Torah instead of Moses. Rabbi Kiva says, my knowledge of Torah is equal to a shepherd of small animals. But the high school kid or the, the seventh grader who says, I, I, you know, I studied and I memorized how to read words that I don't even know what they mean. What do you mean? I've done it all. I finished it. I've done it. I can move on. That's the reality. The more you study in Torah, the more you realize how little you know. So the people that know the most or that think they know the most are the ones that literally know the least. That's what the Torah is. You're opening up your brain into a just an unfathomable intelligence. And as you dip your toe in, you say, oh, okay, you know, you start thinking about it. You know, you find some insight where it's a, it's a contradiction, it's a problem. You think about it, and then you dwell upon it. You spend six months thinking, 18 hours a day, about a certain problem in Torah. And then you hit pay dirt. And then the, the rush, the endorphins, that are released are unparalleled and unrivaled by any sort of substance, uh, chemically or naturally produced. That's what the Torah tells us. 
And that's a mitzvah that we have, each one of us. We say it every day. Love God. It's, it's, it's a mitzvah. It's not an easy thing to, to achieve, and probably not so many people actually uh, achieve it. But it's one of the mitzvahs, one of the 13, uh, 613 mitzvahs, and it's one of the six constant mitzvahs. And it's one we say every day. How are we going to do that? So God says, you know what? I have my Torah that I gave you. I have my world that I gave you. You know, and if you spent 18 hours in a lab as a scientist, and you're facing with a real problem, you know, or you have a discovery of the double helix structure of the DNA, or, or you have some sort of eye-opening insight in science, you have that aha moment where you realize how vast God is, you know, and how, and how mind-blowing that is. That's, that's, that's another way to do it. God says, hey, I'm, I'm opening up my handiwork to you. I'm opening up my brain to you. My mitzvahs as well, my instructions. These are tools that you use to achieve this mitzvah of Hashem. The Torah is perhaps, the, you know, arguably, the one of the, what's one of the three ways to do it. Maybe it's the best way. Maybe it's, maybe it's not. Maybe it's via science. You know, maybe the, the scientist as well has the same opportunity. But this is a, uh, the Torah is uh, the way one of the ways that we could uh, uh, do to achieve this wonderful mitzvah and wonderful pleasure of loving God. Number number eight, you, Vital, you had you had your hand raised there. I have a simple question. Uh, when you were studying at the yeshiva, yes, nine years, whatever, yeah, you only study Torah, Talmud, and all that, or do you study other subjects as well? Like what? Sciences or math? Oh math. no, no, no. Just Torah. Just so whatever it's history I did was was like Torah history, or like the like uh, history of Torah, Jewish history. Yeah, but, Jewish history. but that's all incidental. What we did, our schedule was, um, our schedule is imagine a room like a vast auditorium, enormous auditorium, with a thousand yeshiva students sitting on benches six across, uh, with literally a foot and a half separating two benches with stenders. Stenders are like. Uh, these like uh, little lecterns, these, you know, just a little stender. There's no other word for it. It's a Yiddish word. It's like, it means like stander, like the thing that stands, which um, is just ergonomically designed, perfect for Torah study. You can stand with it, or you can sit down and lean on it, right? And then just three sets of, of chavrusas, of, of study pairs, and just literally streaming on top of the lawns in debate for four hours in the morning, four hours in the afternoon, two hours at night. That's what it is, basically. You walk into some of these places. Like, if, I, if we took a class trip to yeshiva, like it, it's 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 a it's an experience or it, it's an environment that's not paralleled by anywhere else. Nowhere else. You go to Harvard Law School or wherever. The, what we consider it to be the you know the 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 epitome of 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 intellectual achievement. It, it's it's kindergarten compared to walking into the Mir Yeshiva. Kindergarten. You know, you just see like these these like I said we talked about earlier these these intellectual superstars. Debating and arguing for hours upon hours on top of their lungs. I was just you know, packed, you. not a single seat empty. You know why? Because if you come, if you come, because there's more. It's like a little some game of musical chairs. You know, they they put 110 people for every hundred seats. Yeah. So like they had a rule that if you weren't the study starts at nine, nine to one, and then three to seven, and then and then eight to ten at night. So there's lunch and dinner in between. If, and people came from all across, all of Israel came to every day to converge on, on the yeshiva. So, uh, but if you came, if you were not there by 9.30, if you were outside, you were still finishing your breakfast, you were drinking a coffee, whatever, if you weren't there, someone else would take your seat for fair and square. You know, because that's what they have. They have a, a finite amount, they have, you know, probably 6,000 seats, and 
you know, 6,500 students. So every single seat taken and the noise, I, I, I remember they were, we were in, I, I was studying, they have like multiple buildings in the shiva that I went to. Maybe, you know, maybe six or seven or eight buildings of, you know, just of, you know, you just, you know, the, the buildings, there's no, you know, no, no, no expansive library, none of that. It's just like every little study, place they put in. Please say from a tikkun or? No, no, it's from the Talmud. Talmud, oh. but there's all, all the sort of the commentaries given, just the books are, are endless. So every, 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 every basement or every, every study house has uh, all the access to all the books that you might need. So where do you? And then you have one room that one room in the entire yeshiva that has all the exotic books. So besides high school or Hebrew high school, whatever beforehand, where do you get the other thing, art and social stuff and science? Where do I get it? Where? Well, you are on the other So some yeshiva students they go to they go to universities, you know, uh, but that's not part of the yeshiva schedule. Some yeshiva, some yeshivas in America have like partnerships with local colleges. They go twice a week, whatever. Uh, but but many of them don't. I never I never went to uh, never learned about art. Whatever I did, I picked it up on the internet. Oh, yeah. Math, math, well, math. Well, I'm saying we, I, we went to high school, but uh, yeah, the, 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 the Torah itself has there's a lot of mathematical calculations that need to be made. But I mean, if you're going to be a rabbi, you should have some, and you're dealing with people, you know. Yeah, so, so yes, but remember, this is the point that I started off with. When we talk about Torah study, it is a it is a pursuit of 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 learning that is not to achieve an end goal. It's not about getting your certification or getting your ordination or becoming a rabbi or having a curriculum. It's not that. It's about studying Torah for the sake of studying Torah. That's what it's like. So if someone were to say, you know, when I was when I wanted to get my smicha, I wanted to become a rabbi. I, I did a program, like, but the, the, I, I, I did like a program for rabbinate, or you know. But when I was in yeshiva, I wasn't I was studying nothing to do with anything that was related to any of the rabbinic uh, field or anything that I've used so to my ordination. Yeah, well, I went to yeshiva high school years. as well. I went to yeshiva high school as well. But it's nine years beyond. Well, it doesn't have to be nine years. Like I said it's not a set amount of time. Some people go for one year. Some people go for six months. Some people go for fifty years. It's that's why I said it's not about us. Well, I, I took a little longer than others. <laughs> no, but it's not about. It, but the more you study, the more you realize how much there is to study. So no one actually, even the greatest sages, finished at all. You know, no one reaches the level of Rabbi Akiva today. <laughs> so does one graduate from? There's no. That's the, exactly the point that I wanted to make. Is that it's not about. There are some yeshivas that have programs and uh, curriculums. But the classic yeshiva is not about graduation or achieving a certain end. It's about yes, studying for the sake of studying. About learning. So then, I I did uh, a, I, I took a rabbinics test under the Chief Justice of the Jerusalem Supreme Rabbinical Court, and I may or may not have aced it. Uh, and and I got my smicha, and I got the smicha from also one of the institutions that I was learning in Meishat Torah. I got two smichas. Smichas is the Hebrew word for ordination. Uh, but some people decide that they don't need that. They'll, you know, they want to study Torah, and the one they don't care about, they're not going into any field that would demand or require them to have uh, smicha, to have a rabbinic certificate or whatever. How do you support yourself when you're going through So that's the thing. So what, what, what the, someone asked a question, why I... You're a waiter. No. <laughs> you don't have time. So like this. Um, in, uh, in, in the communities that value Torah study above all else, uh, there are well. So when I was a, when I was a yeshiva student, when I was in, in just when I was you know my my parents supported me till I got married. 
Uh, and then once I got married, I you know I did some work on the side, and my chaya was working a little what bit. Work when? A little bit of this, a little bit of that on the side, you know. Uh, you know, I, I tutored a st- uh, someone. I had some tutoring jobs. I I went to a different yeshiva like that 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 gave a stipend. Plus, my wife had a job, and my in laws like helped a little bit. You know, so we scraped along for for five years uh, of after after I got married, uh, and that's and that's kind of why we. One of the reasons why why I left wasn't because I finished all of Torah. <laughs> you can't finish all of Torah. It's not possible. You're not infinite. Right, we said that. Even Rabbi Akiva says, "What am I? The more you learn, the more you realize how little you know." Reason, one of the reasons why we left was because, you know, I, it was financially challenging. So, you know what? I'll tell you, I, I feel like I, I, I don't believe that it's possible for me to ever recapture that those pleasures that we've had studying Torah. Nothing, nothing. And I feel, I feel like when the Ramam says, like this, 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 this apex of pleasure that that you have while Torah study, when you're working on a problem, and you know, when you're writing Torah insights, when you're when you're totally delving in to a Torah problem, you're, like you're immersed in it. There's nothing like it. There's, there's no. You give me a billion dollars, the the, the, the pleasure won't won't be. You can't do it, you know, because it's it's a spiritual pleasure. That's just it's it's not matched by by any 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 amount of uh, of physical pleasures. So after you finish the yeshiva, what what more is there to learn or to study in order to become a rabbi? So becoming a rabbi is a very uh, subjective term because depending on who's ordaining someone as a rabbi, <laughs> will determine what they're looking for uh, by way of uh, or you know for their graduates or for their. Uh, rabbis, you know, so uh, it, all the institutions of all of rabbis in America, they have, you know, um, they have, I guess, what they demand of them or what they expect of them, some curriculum, you know. So obviously, um, the more uh, traditional the ra- the rabbi, the more it's going to be dealing with traditional learning, um, as opposed to you know other kind of uh, progressive ideas, whatever. Um, but some of them, like some of the most intense rabbinic uh, tests, are going to be like the like the uh, the Israeli rabbinate, just the state-sponsored rabbinate, gives some of the most grueling uh, rabbinic uh, uh, tests. Yeah, so yeah, it just it's. <laughs> So some of them have have elements of that, and some of them are no. These are these are this is like a Torah position, not like a not like a pulpit rabbi, but like more of like a, a rabbinic judge or whatever. So yeah, so it's going to be different wherever you go. No, I'm saying, but there's going to be those that are more geared towards pulpit rabbis, and there are other ones that are geared towards let's see, a, a rabbinic justice, where it's just about adjudicating. Yeah, well, that's what rabbi used to mean, adjudicator in the law, not teacher, not. Now it's morphed into a rabbi as a teacher. Yeah, it's, it has changed a lot. Yeah. Rabbis used to be community leaders. That's right. Well, in some communities, they still are. Did you have to study any kind of law? Which law? Well, that's all we did. All <laughs> that's what we did. All you know, and a, a lot of guys uh, to answer your question. So you, you, a lot, of, a lot of yeshiva students, when they finish their yeshiva, they go into law. 
because to them, like they've been doing this day and night for years. So like this is, the, you know, it, it, they, yeah, exactly. Their brain is, is very conditioned to understanding how, you know, the rigidity of law and how it works and how, how to think. And how to, exactly, and how to argue. And I mean, it's basically the pulpit, you know, we, we always consider, you know, we'd be a pulpit rabbi, and the importance is so much has to do with dealing with the public, your constituents, and you're saying that a lot of the rabbis come out are just not equipped to do that. No, or, 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 or that those are the people that do not go into or a lot, of, a lot of them don't. A lot of them don't go through yeshiva to get any sort of document. They just go to yeshiva to study Torah. It's not about becoming a rabbi. It's about just you know studying Torah. Yeah. So do you feel sometimes that it's getting a little bit more of a general university type? There is a. This is a. This is at the core of the debate of if you want to Google the term uh, modern orthodoxy. That term. Um, uh, that was a, a philosophy that is espoused by modern Orthodox, where uh, where it's important to get a general secular education on top of a Torah education. That is uh, that is what that argument uh, argues, you know, as an ideal. It's not not just as uh, you know a a way to solve a specific problem, but ideally, someone should get as broad of a of a secular knowledge as possible. Necessarily, but uh, yeah. it encouraged. Work ethic yes. Do you think society would be better served if some of those folks would well, use their intellectual talents to go into, instead of studying Torah for 10 plus years, to become physicists, or medical researchers, or engineers, or those sorts of things? So, this is what happens when you come late, Dave. I'm not trying to blame you, but I, I did make that argument. I, it's okay. I I'm not trying to, to, to uh, con- condemn you in any way. I'm just saying that what I did argue in, in an earlier point, I said that one of my dreams is to take these yeshiva students during the 10 weeks of their vacation and just present them all the problems, you know, and they're just rapidly like, like the blender. Remember the blender example? But, you still have but I do play. agree. But I think the, one of the problems is, and it's a great frustration, is that if you have a guy who's taking his Torah studies seriously, and it's been 10 years or whatever studying Torah, but they're a fully formed uh, intellectual just titan. They're ready to go. But now they have maybe, you know, they have two, three kids. They're married. They have financial responsibilities. They, they don't have the eight years to go get an education you know, they may not even have a bachelor's degree. They have nothing. They have a bachelor's degree plus a graduate degree plus this plus that. It's it's just not practical for them. That's a, a source of major frustration. Where in today's kind of reality, where you need to have certain you know benchmarks of 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 secular uh, of secular uh, education in order to get into those fields. I think if if that if that was removed somehow magically. I think that, that would be a very good thing because you could open up, you know, it would help them because they're about to, you know, ha- maximize their abilities and help the world because the world will 
be able to benefit uh, from these people to take tackling these problems. But unfortunately, that's the reason why uh, most of the most of the most most of these people don't go into those kind of fields. But I would love if there would be some way to sidestep all that, uh, all that. You know, I think it would be a, a, a wonderful uh, boon for everyone. There's a great uh, there's a great statement by uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Scalia. Uh, who made a speech once, and he said, all of these great, fantastic, brilliant lawyers, that's the last thing society needs. If they had gone into medicine or engineering, physics or something else like that, I, I wish they would have used their intellectual talents to go into fields that actually are more productive or help more people or help the yeah. world. And that was that, that sort of the analogy. Not, not that there's not a place for people to study Torah. No, I'm, 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 I know, I'm, 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 but I'm saying after they finish the Torah study, the Torah study hones their mind, they're good to go. They, well, they, you, you can know, still study, uh, I mean, you may have 12 hours a day, but you can still for sure. an hour to a day. For sure, but his question was, how, let's, 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 let's inject all this brain power into physics. And, oh, yeah, well, no, of course, but people have, we have a whole huge world, we have to, everybody has to fill their own no, ditch. It's not, you can study some more. It's not about the piece of paper on the wall. You just cannot be a medical doctor, even with your right. a genius type. And right, you right. So much to story. You just cannot, uh, you, need, you need to know something. You need 10 years to do it. Right. Um, you cannot be a cosmologist to, 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 to solve the Big Bang thing without long, long time of So, yes, I, I think it is frustrating that uh, that some of the most gifted people on the planet uh, will not be afforded the opportunities, and the planet won't benefit from those people doing uh, or fulfilling roles uh, that would maximize their their talents. So, ready at twelve. I think we got only through nine. I have six more. So, let me just read them. Let me read them quickly here. Um, uh, another reason why I study Torah is to create worlds. What that means will have to be a spoiler for next time. To be close to the Almighty, uh, to preserve the relationship we have with the Almighty, to live. What does that mean? Of course, uh, that would be uh, something that would I would have explained if I had more time. Uh, it to be our food and nourishment and sustenance for Olam Haba, and lastly to achieve dominion over nature, as in Rabbi Yochanan, who when he would study Torah, the birds would be self-combust, and how to how to be able to resuscitate the dead and split the sea. All that can be done through Torah. Uh, but we don't have any time. We'll stop here. Uh, we have, I think, I think, we, I think the number went up from fifteen to seventeen, not including the the additions of of the crowd, uh, crowdsourced ones. But we found seventeen reasons why we study Torah, and I believe that there's more. But either way, I think this should reinforce uh, the uh, the uh, the idea that Torah study uh, is has been the obsession of the Jewish people for so long, uh, not for no reason. Um, because the really every aspect of helping us achieve what we need in life and making our lives uh, more enriched and empowering ourselves and becoming great people uh, in every different element, every aspect of of how we can potentially become greater people, improve ourselves, uh, can be achieved via Torah study. So that's that, guys. Yes, yes. Torah is the way that God's talking to him, and then whenever he prays, he's talking to God. So that's what that is. Fantastic. I have a topic for you. For so you'll email me, or you can tell me right now, but...
angels. Still a baby. Is that worth it? If it's somebody with this angel, like I said, if that's what you guys want to hear, we'll talk about We'll talk about angels. Of course, uh, I have uh, no uh, prior experience. No, I don't either. I'm not, ta- I'm not, ta- I'm not talking about uh, from personal experience, but the yes. The origin of angels, how they came to be, why huh? we don't have a daughter. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> no, but that's, I thought that was a good Yes. Good yes, thank you.